This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Information Systems Agency is closing in on a decision on whether or not to fully enter the Thunderdome. Like the Mad Max movie from the 1980s, DISA's choice will focus on survival, in DISA's case, from cyber attacks. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now to discuss what factors DISA is weighing about whether to move forward with this zero-trust prototype. And Jason, let's start with a reminder about what DISA's Thunderdome project actually is. Great name, I'll tell you that. One of the things DOD does well is they come up with great names for their projects. So without a doubt, Thunderdome always brings us back to the Mad Max movie of the 1980s, Tom, and I couldn't resist mentioning it. But as a reminder, this is a $7 million contract that DISA awarded to Booz Allen Hamilton last January under an OTA and other transactional agreement. The goal, in part, was to test out several tools and capabilities that would move DISA in this case, but really any agency that wanted to use this approach, this architecture approach, closer to a zero-trust environment. The focus on the prototype was across six of the seven pillars that DoD outlined in its maturity model. You can find those you can find that outline on federalnewsnetwork.com, but the only one that they're not really focused on through this Thunderdome project is the data pillar. But basically what I've heard is data piece was just too hard, too much complexity in there. Data categorization has been a problem for DoD for a long time, so they did not focus on that data pillar. Now, what they're doing through Thunderdome is implementing two commercial concepts, software-defined networking, SD-WAN, as well as something called SASE, Secure Access Service to the Edge. Now, SASE is meant to combine cybersecurity services and wide area networking, uh, both in the cloud, so DoD's applications and data are increasingly running in these cloud environments to keep them more secure. So this was a prototype, not a done deal by any means. And the prototype has been in place for nearly a year now. Do we know how it's going? This executives actually are very optimistic about the results so far at their annual industry day that just happened earlier this week in Towson, Maryland. Uh, Dr. Brian Herman, who leads the cybersecurity and analytics directorate at DISA, says the Thunderdome pilot is tying the elements, all these different elements of zero trust together. For this to work, we have to be able to say, who is the, is the individual that's trying to access a capability or data? How do, they, how do we know that that's them? So we use PKI. We use ICAM, Identity Credentialing and Access Management, to say, I can verify that's Brian. And then through ICAM, we can say he does have access to this. But wait a second. I'm not sure about him because his device has not been patched. It's not a DOD-patched capability. It's uh, maybe not coming from a trusted network or a trusted location as well. And so that's the kind of thing that we're going to eventually get to. And it really is going to be something that has to be done across the department. Make those fine-grain access control decisions. This is Brian Herman adds that the pilot already is uh, doing this for in the Office 365 environment. Uh, so this is from Microsoft that you log on to from your personal computer with your cat card. You can see your email, but you can't download or print from that email. This is an example of what he calls fine-grain access control that they do see in the future that Thunderdome or whatever they're going to call it through, through Zero Trust will bring them. Now, the initial focus of the pilot is to roll out Thunderdome capabilities through the Defense Enclave, which includes fourth estate agencies as well as the Joint service provider partners in the Pentagon. And Herman says that he hopes that Thunderdome eventually eventually will replace the joint regional security stacks or something called JRSS, which DOD has been implementing over the last decade. It's not a one-for-one replacement, but a lot of what JRSS does will be picked up by Thunderdome. And they're already starting to see some of those benefits from Thunderdome. One example of uh, we've replaced the, uh, the VPN capabilities that are part of JRSS with a uh, secure access service edge or SASE capability. And that also streamlines our routing. 
So we no longer do we go into a JRSS node, hairpin back out and go out to cloud-based services. We go directly from where the user is to those cloud-based services. Even if you're at home teleworking, that's a big difference. And so I've had people tell me that their user experience is better from home when they're on Thunderdome and that capability than if they're in the office. Again, this is Brian Herman talking about the importance of user experience when it comes to this project called Thunderdome. And we also heard Brian Herman talk about some of the ways they're measuring Thunderdome success. What are the factors this is looking at as they move toward this decision of whether or not to roll it out in its entirety? You're right. The, the user experience is, is huge. And, and I think that's just one piece of how this is measuring success. But Brian Herman also says there's more objective ways, including using the Joint Interoperability Test Command known as JITIC. We are using JITIC as our test and evaluation command to look at it from an operational assessment and an operational test perspective. So we have objective measures that we use. Some of those are cybersecurity measures, kind of along the lines of our our fourth line of effort. We're also evaluating uh, the performance from an end user perspective as well so that we can see, you know, obvious answers already that show that the the user experience is better because the routing is more simplified uh, and straightforward for users both on and off premises. So thus far, the users that are on it don't want to give it up, and those that aren't on it yet want to get on it. Now, a lot of these measures are being looked at at DISA headquarters at Fort Meade. They're also rolling out Thunderdome in places like Hawaii and into a PACOM region. And he also expects DISA to expand Thunderdome to some people in the Pentagon later this month. Now, Herman says Thunderdome is rolling out both at the classified and on unclassified networks. We do a comparison of the cybersecurity capabilities against what we have today. Uh, is it as good or better? Uh, while giving us the ability to look at things from a, a zero-trust perspective. Is it going to allow us to eliminate some things that we've done in the past, kind of at the mid-tier functions? And do we limit, uh, I'll give a couple examples, like lateral movement across the, the backbone. Do we uh, limit lateral movement inside of our, uh, enclave networks as well? Uh, have we replaced uh, the way that we do VPNs today with a secure way to connect for teleworkers? Yes, we think, we think those things are being evaluated, and not just the performance and not just the speed, but those things are happening as well. Now, going into this prototype, Tom, just to be clear, DISA did have some confidence of that these technologies would work. They tested this out in the lab, and I think that's really the first step toward this broader expansion of Thunderdome that they had confidence to begin with, and now obviously they're getting more confidence as they do more of these tests. Now, DOD at that level is about to put out its own zero-trust strategy for all of the armed services, all of the agencies. Do they kind of mesh with what DISA is doing here? They absolutely do, and the one thing I think DISA and both DOD Chief Information Officer John Sherman made clear is Thunderdome is a set of zero trust capabilities, but it is not the answer to zero trust for all DOD. And and even DISA says its goal was not to create a one-size-fits-all approach to zero trust, but just to test out these concepts, make sure, again, around the six of these seven DOD zero trust pillars, they could make a difference. Now, DOD CIO John Sherman signed off on that a DOD zero trust strategy back October 27th. We do expect DOD to release it publicly in the coming weeks. Sherman tells the DISA Industry Day audience about how Thunderdome influenced the zero trust strategy. We're talking about getting this done by 2027 for a 4 million person enterprise. And we've learned from a number of the, the big companies whose names you know who have been down this path, services that have done parts of this. This is going to be a heavy lift. 2027 is not that far off, but we recognize this cannot be an optional way to approach this. 
Now, once we kind of heard that this was signed out, Tom, we put on our reporter hats that we always wear, and we did a little bit of digging to figure out, okay, what else can we learn about this DOD forthcoming zero-trust strategy beyond what John Sherman and some of his folks have said? And, and the one thing I'll offer as a bit of a teaser that we've learned is DOD is trying to make the zero-trust strategy more outcome-based. What does that mean? It's a little more prescriptive about how the services and agencies will implement this cyber architecture. Tom, I think that's a big difference in most strategies we see from DOD or really any civilian agency for that matter, because usually they give you these high-level ideas of, you know, you want to do these things and do that thing. I think DOD is trying to say you have targets, you have things you have to achieve by certain dates. And as you heard John Sherman say, 2027, which is their big date to get a lot of these capabilities rolled out, is not that far away. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today 
that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way 
to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. Your training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Peloton's best offer of the season is here. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Choose from a variety of accessories, like our cycling shoes, a heart rate monitor, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. This limited-time offer ends November 28th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer starts November 14th and ends November 28th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com.